This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code, they are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. 
And if you want to hear the full story behind Bub's Naturals and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. Welcome to episode 609 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nick Smith. Now, Nick is a veteran of the law enforcement profession, initially working for the London Metropolitan Police Force and then transitioning into the military as a military police officer. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into policing, the British Coast Guard, the terror attacks in London of 7-7, investigating war crimes, mental health, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Smith. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks. It's great to be here, finally. So, yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. So we have we have talked for quite a long time, a number of years, I think. It was pre, pre-pandemic, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, I know there was a journey, a transition journey that you've been through and you were kind of finally at the point where you're ready to come on now. So, um, again, I, I'm, I'm honored that you are willing to speak not only for yourself but for many of the people that you served alongside absolutely yeah yeah like you said we, it's been a, it's been a while hasn't it i think september 2019 around about then i first got in contact with you so, yeah yeah definitely been a while absolutely so the very first question people listen to your accent probably can tell it's more you know it's closer to mine than theirs so where on planet earth are we finding you today so i'm actually in lancashire which is northwest England, but this is not a Lancashire accent. I'm from Dorset originally, so uh, I up sticks with my my wife, who is from Lancashire, um, in August. So yeah, I'm a southerner living in the northern life. Beautiful. So let's start there then. So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. So I was born in Dorchester, which is a, a town in Dorset, which is right in the south of England. Um, and mum and dad, dad's an electrician. Um, my mum is a dental nurse and there's five of us. So I've got three sisters, two older, one younger and a younger brother. So it was a bit of a madhouse growing up with five of us. Brilliant. Now I'm actually one of five as well, so I can totally relate. I'm a middle child, so you know where this is going. Yes. <laughs> All right, we can just close the interview right here. <laughs> All right. Well, then, when you were young, you know, obviously America and England are a little different when it comes to kind of athletics and sports. So, what were you doing and playing at that age? Football, 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 soccer. Um, yeah, that's that's all I did. Um, I was a goalie, goalkeeper, so. 
the agile one apparently. Um, but yeah, that's that was all I did really as a kid. Um, yeah. Now, what about career aspirations then? So you're, you know, like you said, you're one of five. You're a middle child. What were you dreaming of becoming when you were at school? A fireman. Understandably so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, from as early as I can remember, I wanted to be a fireman. My uncle was a fireman. Um, and yeah, that was it. I just wanted to go around in a, a big, shiny fire engine. Um, yeah, it was just, I don't know if you remember London's Burning. Yes, the, the show, show yeah. It's kind of like the parallels of the bill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sunday nights, um, London's Burning, that was it. I was hooked and that's it. I want to be a fireman. However, <laughs> um, yeah, that didn't happen. Well, we'll talk about that in a sec because obviously it sent you on a very, very unique journey instead. But mm. what what kind of stories do you remember your uncle talking about as far as you know his his experience as a firefighter in the UK? Do you know what? It wasn't really that close to him. I just knew that he was a fireman, but we lived in a very small town. So it was a very small community of the fire service because it was all volunteers. So it was the fire service, the, the lifeboat service and the coast guard and my dad was part of the coast guard cliff rescue um and so it was just that 999 kind of environment if you like growing up in that um, and you'd always see the fire engines turning out and you know you'd hear the, the sirens of the the police cars and the ambulances and all sorts and the, the coast guard helicopters and and that was kind of the environment i grew up in really um, i used to go out beach patrols with my dad you know, when they used to do beach patrols. Um, when I was like 10, I remember having my own little Coast Guard uniform. Um, and yeah, and that was it, you know. So I remember one of my early childhood memories was the uh, lifeboat, like charity box that you see in the post office. Yeah. And you know, it was the shape of a lifeboat. Yeah. And it's so different here in the US where, you know, the Coast Guard, the military Coast Guard are the ones that protect our, uh, you know, our coasts, as it were, obviously, yeah. by the name. Um, but in the UK, and I just went down to uh, Cornwall. Yeah, so he's in Cornwall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and right on the water, one of the kind of inlets, and there's a lifeboat, lifeboat station there. So kind of talk to me about that because, you know, on the Coast Guard in the US, you have a you know, a bunch of highly paid, highly trained, you know, men and women that are responding, but they are mm. part of a military branch. Tell me right. or tell the people listening who the men and women are on the lifeboats. So, well, you've got two elements. You've got the Coast Guard, which are predominantly cliff rescue, search and rescue. Um, and they, they come from patrolling the shores of England from smugglers and um, things like that. And so they've progressed to a rescue service. And that's that's the actual um, military, the UK military? No, no, no. This is uh, a volunteer service. Okay. So, so yeah. So that's why um, I get all these, these names confused, especially being a kind of transatlantic mutt. Yeah. So, no, our Coast Guard is a purely a rescue service. Uh, volunteers that will turn out... Um, to, to whatever they need to go to, which is similar to the lifeboat. Um, and they work hand in hand um, as the lifeboat will go out to save those in peril at the sea, as the song goes. Um, yeah, so they're both a rescue organisation. Um, the lifeboat is a charity organisation, so it's run solely on charities, hence you see the little lifeboat collection tins and you know the, the RNLI shops and things like that. 
so you know a coastal town like I grew up in called Swanage that was you know that was a, a big deal yeah and I remember the one of the kind of um I don't know the unique elements of it is that it would already be like elevated where the lifeboat was and so there'd be a ramp system and it would literally slide into the That's ocean right. and yeah. off it went yeah you had a big a big house if you like like a fire station but a big slipway coming out of it and you know you'd see all the guys running into the uh into the lifeboat station and off goes the boat into the sea and off they go and it's funny like you know i grew up seeing all these characters like the coxswain of the lifeboat and stuff and he was a big big time kind of guy in in the town and all of a sudden i see that the people that i went to school with are now fulfilling that role um so it's so it's kind of strange really just to see that dynamic continue you know 30 years later well i think what makes it you know unique and in america we have volunteer firefighters as well and it's it's kind of a paradox because i talk about it there are a lot of volunteer firefighters in densely populated areas that really should be paid professional firefighters you know they've kind of taken advantage of that but i think what that system and, and the uk system you're talking about does foster is that sense of community that sense of volunteerism that sense of service um where you know before we were recording we we're talking about you know there's men and women that we work alongside some of whom are literally just you know cashing that paycheck and then you have other men and women i just interviewed a female firefighter in kenya who up until a couple of years ago after some donations all she went into the fire with was a helmet that was it and so she's running in burning buildings in Africa, you know, and often you know, losing people and having to deal with the mental element of not being able to rescue because she didn't even have the gear to make entry. Um, and then you have obviously the other side where people are paid well to do whatever profession they do, and they're bitching and whining about how bad their life is. You know, so I think that the lifeboats and the British Coast Guard and the American Volunteer Fire Service are incredible kind of role models of the volunteerism that we should have. It doesn't have to be our career, but some element of our job contributing to our community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people do it for the love of the game. You know, they they want to be, they want to serve their community. Um, and, you know, they're, they're held in great stature, of, you know, and everyone sees them running out when the pager goes off and stuff, you know. So it's, it's that kind of, um, yeah. Yeah, we could learn a lot from them. Well, so you said you didn't become a firefighter. So, no. talk, kind of walk me through graduating school and and you know where that took you, career wise. So I finished school with okay grades, nothing special really, um, and I went off to college to do a course which was kind of in its infancy, and it was designed around people that wanted to go into the public services, so police, fire, ambulance. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't for me. Um, it was too academic. Um, and I'd rather have just be out there doing the job. So I left that quite quickly after about a year. And when I got a job um, to get a bit of cash. And then I don't know what happened, really. I think part of that course, I went to Dorset Police Headquarters. And we it was like a have a look-see kind of day. And um, I was walked into this big hangar. The, the police helicopter was parked there, ready to go. And, and it was just something, being there from the bill, I guess. Um, I was like, do you know what? I want to be a policeman. You know, 
Um, and I think because of the, the environment I was in, I didn't see full-time firefighters as a thing. You know, it's just part-time. Um, so I thought, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the police instead. So you had that exposure. What was that journey through? Did you find yourself in the in the you know the British police at first, and then into the military, or did you go straight into the military? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no. So I applied for Dorset Police when I was well, eighteen, I think, fresh fresh out of school. Um, I did all the fitness tests, did all the interviews, and they came back with, well, unfortunately, I've got enough life experience to be a policeman. And at the time, I was devastated. I was like. Well, how am I supposed to get life experience if you won't give me a job, that kind of thing? So it was mentioned to me that, oh, well, if Dorset won't have you, you should join the Met Police instead. So in went an application form, got an interview, did my fitness test, and there I was at 19, joining the Metropolitan Police. So moving from sleepy Dorset up to uh, the big smoke on my own, it was, uh, yeah, it was eye-opening, to say the least. Now, where were you assigned? Which part of London? So, following training at Hendon, which is North London, I literally went across the road to Collindale Police Station uh, in, in Barnet Borough, which is North London again. Um, and yeah, so it wasn't a, a city centre kind of posting. It was more rural area of London. And it was very, it's a lot of money in that area um gold is green which is a very, very affluent jewish community so we were policing that um yeah it was uh you know we didn't even have any pubs to deal with you know like kick out time what it was that uh, there's a part of england yeah. that doesn't have pubs in it <laughs> i know well none that people were kicking off afterwards so yeah so it was it was a, a mixed bag of what we dealt with up there um a lot of domestics, obviously. Um, I think I don't think there's a copper anywhere that says they've never been to a domestic. Uh, yeah, and then you know we used to get because it was the end of the tube line, the northern line. We used to get a lot of gangs kind of migrate into our area, do a bit of petty street crime, and quickly hop back on the, the tube and, and disappear. Um, and that was kind of what we were dealing with, really. Um, my first role was the crime and disorder unit, which essentially was a big bus full of about 12 of us. And we would just go en masse to any sort of disorder call. Um, and that was pretty cool. I think that's, you know, it was, it was busy. Um, and yeah, you just get, you got to deal with, with all sorts. If I'm honest, absolutely anything that came out that needed a lot of cops, we went to it. Now, what did the training look like, um, like physical fitness-wise and then also kind of more of a kind of hands-on detach uh, element? Physical, I'm going to say not a lot, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Um, it was 18 weeks training. It was, again, head in the books, learning very basic legislation. But physical, I think we probably had one session a week, if that. Um, and hands-on stuff, so... OST, officer safety training. I think there's a week, there's a solid week of it. And that involves using your baton, um, extendable baton, your cuffs and your spray. So it was CS spray. And that involves you stand in the middle of a football field in a line and they just spray you just so you know the effects. 
And to be honest, that was essentially it. So, so how did that prepare you for being on a bus full of, you know, men and women that are kind of deployed rapidly? No, it didn't at all. Um, and, you know, I was, I was quite young and very inexperienced in life. So Dorset Police had my number there. Um, you'd get off the bus and I would, it, most, the first six, eight months, I was literally a rabbit in headlights, jumping off that bus and just looking for other people to deal with it, you know, and then to follow their lead. So I wasn't, you know, the first one there and made a mistake or end up getting my head kicked in or, or do you know what I mean? So training didn't prepare you for anything, if I'm honest. Um, and it, did, it certainly didn't train you for the trauma that you deal with on day to day basis. It wasn't even mentioned, and this is 2003. So you didn't talk about it. You just went and dealt with calls and then on to the next one. Um, so, yeah, training um, didn't, doesn't prepare you at all for what's about to happen. Now, just to jump back for a second, because I know we're obviously going to talk about, you know, your transition and some of the struggles, which we, is an absolute common denominator with so many people in uniform. Um, one thing I didn't ask you, when you look back at your childhood, as I have learned from almost 600 interviews now, childhood trauma is is probably like the elephant in the room, the least acknowledged element that we bring into the profession and then therefore i think really sets the the kind of foundation or lack thereof of mental health or ill health as we you know start seeing all these things not sleeping have organizational stress etc cetera, etc cetera. when you look back were there any, any elements of your childhood that you would consider were traumatic yes i think so um at the time you don't think they're traumatic you just think this is just a normal upbringing um but, you know, things, things happen in your childhood and, like you say, it, it affects you later on in life, even though you don't realise it. Um, but, you know, it was just a typical 90s childhood. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, and I, I think, I don't look back, now I look back at my life, I don't look back that far um, into it because I don't really think it's got that much of an effect. Um, but like you said, it, I think it gets into your DNA quite early on trauma um, and like you said it sets you up for how you deal with it in the future um, and it didn't set me up very well if I'm honest now when you say when you say you think so were there any specific things or was it just the kind of you know the dynamic no, that... just, yeah just the environment you grow up in um, my younger brother was very very ill when he was born and that kind of shaped our family dynamic quite a lot um, and I'm not saying we would the neglected the, the four of us but you know it kind of shifted to him and, and you know it, it was you know, thinking back it was quite traumatic to see what he was going through um so you know that's i think that's my earliest memory of trauma if you like well that mirrors i forget who it was now one of my other guests um i think his brother ended up passing away so he was very very ill for a long time and he again kind of acknowledged like not looking for sympathy and not being like, oh, you know, my life was so bad because, but you have exactly what you said. You have the trauma of seeing your sibling, in his case, basically dying. And then, of course, the parents are going to pour most of their attention and support into that one child. And subconsciously, through no fault of anyone, the other children have that feeling a little bit of being second best, being abandoned, you know, not being loved as much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
and you know it's the effect that it has on your parents as well um you know when you see their mental health deteriorating as well because of this um but you know you you think it's normal at the time you know i speak to other people my friends similar age had exactly the same upbringing you know that's it was the 90s that's how it was Mm -hmm. now with that when i first moved to london i went to university in north london and I remember the first year I stayed in halls of residence. So I was with a whole bunch of other people and it was awesome. Second year I was in this bed set in Highgate. And I remember just being so fucking lonely because I came from a rural town, Bath. I grew up on a farm. I was around animals and people. You know, it was just a constant, you know, kind of revolving door of my dad's veterinary clients, you know. So it was just always people around and all of a sudden I was on my own in a completely different city that I didn't really know many people at all the one guy I was really close with he had a girlfriend so obviously he was with her a lot of the time so what was that like for you just physically moving to North London after being in your own town it was something I never thought I'd do um, and I remember being dropped off at the gates of Hendon the Metropolitan Police Service training school and off I went um, Training was okay because you have that camaraderie, you have that everyone's in the same boat, but then you get you get posted on, and that's it. You are you are on your own, and you turn up and you are the new guy. Um, and you know I was staying in what they call a section house, which is basically a bed sit in a police station or above a police station, as it was in London. Um, and yeah, you you finish shift, you go home, you'd sit there in your room, you know, because you didn't have a TV or anything because you couldn't afford one. Um, and you sit there hotel lonely until your shift was about to start again and you know and it, it turns out that you don't want to go back to that room on your own so you stay on at work you know um, or as I found myself driving home from London down to Dorset after a shift just because I didn't want to be in London on my own which is what like a two and a half hour drive uh, yeah about that yeah um, and I was doing that after nights as well so I drive home at six o'clock in the morning after a 10 hour night shift, go to sleep, turn around, do it again. But that was because London is a very lonely place. You don't know anyone. And, and you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I met, I made friends, but you know, commas friends, but you know, they're just people you work with. So yeah, from a, from a small town to a big city, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard transition. Yeah, no, it really is. And I think that's one of the biggest ironies. You, you take somewhere like London or New York, there's millions, millions of people, yet how many people in those cities are devastatingly lonely? You know, it's, it's such a crazy irony when you think about it. Yeah, and I mean, for me, 19-year-old with a warrant card, you know, it, it was insane that they gave me baton and cuffs and could drive around in police cars. Insane. Um, yeah, and that, and that was just, how it was it was just you know looking back I just think wow did that actually happen so how long were you with the Met before you started thinking about the military well I never thought about the military really so my brother was serving um, my brother-in-law Rob he's serving um, and I said to him oh, do you know what I might join the military police reserves and he was like don't you dare become a reservist so after a few years of being in the Met Things were starting to go wrong. I think, you know, my career was unraveling slightly. Um, and I just couldn't deal with the pressure of being a policeman in London. Um, my work was slipping. 
you know, I was turning up late for work. Um, and, you know, I was, I was getting disciplined a fair amount of times. Uh, I was referred to as a, a problem PC or a problem probationer, as they'd say. Um, and then uh, a few incidents I went to where I, I didn't handle it very well or I wasn't handled very well. And I thought, you know what, this is enough. I want to go home. So I asked for a transfer to Hampshire Police, which was near our home. And they said, no, we spent too much money on training courses for you that you've still got, you've got to stick out. So I said, well, well, that's it. Here's my warrant card. I want to go home. And that was it. After that, um, straight, straight out of London, handed my uniform in, straight out of London into an armed forces careers office. Sign me up. So I originally went to join the RAF police, the Air Force police, but there was a queue. So uh, the army sergeant that was behind the desk said, oh, what, what are you here to do? I said, oh, I want to join the military police. Come and sit down. And that was it. Um, I, I was signed up. <laughs> so then, so you have your, you know, your journey into the, you know, I guess civilian, you know, Met Police and the training that you had there. Yeah. What was different about your journey into policing in the military? I, th- I think the experiences I had um, from being in the Met Police, I don't, I don't think people in the military police would experience in their entire career from a policing aspect. Um, you know, and I, I was dealing with stuff in the Met that I, you know, I could deal with like that in the military. You know, I remember an incident of I arrested someone, a soldier, for possession of a lock knife, I think. So possession of an offensive weapon in town. He'd gone into a bar with a lock knife. So I arrested him and brought him in to the police station. And the duty officer, so is someone that's overseeing the shift, if you like, called me to the side and said, oh, what have you arrested for? I told him, are you sure that's an offence? And I was like, yeah. He said, are you sure? I was like, definitely. So he rang on the local civilian police to check and said, oh, is this your first arrest, is it? And I was like, no, it's, it's really not. You know, and it was just, it was just stuff like that. And um, I remember getting pulled out once by uh, my staff sergeant. He said that he doesn't want any of my Met Police tactics being brought into his police station. You know, so it's stuff like that. It's, uh, but on the flip side, my experience made me shoot up through the ranks quite quickly. Um, yeah, you know, I was coming in with 300 plus arrests. You know, and so I knew, I knew how to deal with people. Um, and, you know, I could do stuff on my own. I could go out on my own, patrolling on my own. You know, but it was it was quite frustrating the the lack of people wanting to not latch on to my experience, but listen to what I had to say um, because I didn't know what I was talking about. You know, even though I was you know I was mid twenties by the time I joined the military, you know I and I had been there and seen it and done it, you know, without sounding too arrogant. But that's that's the way it was. So, what was your actual role? Like, what what? kind of incidents did you find yourself within the military uh, dealing with you know obviously conversely to the ones that you've been dealing with in the civilian world um there's there are some similarities obviously domestics um violent crime stuff like that but then you then get into the realms of military offenses so 
you know, obviously the, the, the army or the armed forces have their own laws, um, which you can investigate people for. You can arrest them for the same procedure. It's just a non-criminal offence. Um, and, you know, you'd, like I say, you would still deal with the same stuff, but you'd also deal with, you know, high-value frauds because you could basically you could print your own money on the computer system. You could say, I've spent this on food. I want it back, please. And the military would pay it. Or you could say, I've done this journey home. I want the money back, please. And the military would pay it. Now, neither of those things might have been true. So it's a lot of defrauding the military system, um, which happened quite a lot. It happened quite a lot. But then obviously you've still got the same soldiers fighting on Friday night in the local town and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was... Policing was very different. It wasn't proactive policing like I was used to. It was very, let's wait for the phone to ring. Um, and you wouldn't respond to it. You, you weren't a responsive police service. You know, you'd, you'd go, oh, we'll, we'll go tomorrow, we'll come and get a statement from you tomorrow. And that was, that was just the way things were done. Or you will attend the police station and we'll take a statement from you, which is strange and difficult to get your head around. Now I know we're going to talk about you know the the, the legal element out deployed you know the, on the battlefield itself, but prior to that, I had a, a an amazing guest Lisa Hule, and she was a prosecutor, and she ended up becoming a defense attorney, and one of the the main kind of types of cases that she represents now are first responders who who have committed a crime like there is a victim of this, but she uses the the kind of mental health PTSD element as part of their defense and it and rightly so i mean as you know as we learn more and more about what these jobs do to us they're you know there's not only a mental health as far as self harm there's also a mental health as far as you know uh domestic abuse and and assault and homicide and all these other things too so with some of the things that you dealt with back here you know on british soil were there any elements or aha moments where you saw maybe that there was a kind of ripple effect of what these men and women had done overseas for us coming back to home soil? At the time, no. At the time, it wasn't uh, putting two and two together. However, we did see a lot of violent crime, people coming back. We had a lot of fatal car accidents. Um, We had someone cross a busy dual carriageway and getting hit by by a truck when he comes back and uh, it, you know it, yeah looking back you're probably right you know a whole unit would come back and they'd send them out on the piss in town and end up scrapping with everyone you know and it's um, yeah they, they weren't uh, so on the way back from an operational deployment you stop off at Cyprus and you have what they call decompression which everyone gets a couple of cans of beer and, uh, if, and if anyone's got any problems stick your hand up you know, we'll have a chat about it. No, cool. Right, let's go home. And that was it. Off you go on uh, on your leave until you're back at work. And that was it. Um, so, yeah, when they did get back to work, they hadn't dealt with it. And uh, we were there to pick up the pieces the majority of the time. And, you know, um, I, do, I do remember one particular case where a couple of soldiers came back on R&R and then they had said that they had slept with the same woman whilst on R&R and they thought they had HIV from this woman just so they didn't have to go back. 
obviously they did that didn't happen. So they were then arrested and prosecuted for desertion, which you know is a, is a massive deal in the military. But you, you, I think, like, well, what was going on out there? Were they just unhappy about being on tour, or was there more to it? You know that they didn't want to go back. You know, you don't know. But that that's that example kind of sticks in my in my mind. I mean, that's quite that's quite extreme, isn't it, <laughs> to say. And you did that to not go back. <laughs> yeah, that makes you question why. And like you said, you know, was it just purely Uber made a mistake from day one, or is it I've seen and done enough, I can't take any more? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now with desertion, you know, when you look back historically, you you know see executions if you don't advance. Absolutely. Obviously, World War One's a classic yeah. example. Um, with the legal element, is that still technically in place? It regard desertion. Yes. Yeah. It's part of the Armed Forces Act, yeah. Right. And um, I don't remember the wording, but it's something like not performing your duty for an operational deployment or something like that. Uh, you know, you had desertion, malingering, getting yourself injured or faking injury, so you don't have, to, so you can't deploy. Yeah, there's a big section of operational offences, uh, and th- those two are biggies. Yeah, biggies meaning you can get shot for it. Well, not not as extreme as that, but yeah, you're right. That used to be the, I can't remember what it was, but the, yeah, if you left the lines, you'd get, you'd get the officer in the, in the rear would shoot you. Crazy. All right. Well, then speaking of deployment, um, talk to me again. So so you enter with this you know, solid background in, in the civilian police force. You become military police. At what point did you start transitioning into where you were investigation investigating technically war crimes? So I transferred from general police and duty, so uniform police, uh, to the special investigation branch, the SIB. Um, and that was about 2012. Um, and yet the role of the SIB is to deal with the big juicy jobs, you know, the big big frauds, the serious assaults, the sexual offences, that kind of stuff. Um, and we were quite highly trained in investigations, like interviewing crime scenes, um, disaster victim identification, that, that kind of stuff. And I spent a couple of years in, tr- in training for that. And at the time, there was still kind of the aftermath of the Iraq um, inquiry. Um, which is where a, a public interest lawyer um, brought some spurious claims to the MOD to say that you know people had been abused or shot or or killed by British troops. So it's still kind of the the aftermath of that was you know still rippling through the SIB and the army in, in a whole. Um, and then there we had rumblings that this, a similar thing was coming with Afghanistan. So 2012. The drawdown was a couple of years away. Um, but yeah, we, we all knew it was coming. So 2014, um, my boss at the time said, oh, you just, we just need you to pop upstairs to the department upstairs because uh, just to help out with this Afghanistan thing. Now, this Afghanistan thing turned out to be um, multiple uh, claims of abuse by Afghan nationals following our time in, uh, in Afghanistan. Um, at that time, there were 73 claimants that came forward, uh, brought forward again by a public interest lawyer. 
and that was it and that's where it all began 1st of april 2014 so with that and what i <laughs> i literally found a Wiki, wikipedia page when i put in you know war crimes british um and it, it the iraq one specifically said there was a lot of false claims made by an iraqi lawyer so i with everyone that comes on that's deployed i'm i'm I always present this two-part question, you know, were there moments where you witnessed atrocities that kind of, regardless of the politics that sent you there, made you realize they were horrible people? And this was them witnessing all the, the you know, the horrendous things that were happening to the Afghani and Iraqi people and, you know, just, just a multitude. But then the other side was the kindness and compassion that they witnessed. So it's so important to tell, you know, the story through the soldier's eyes, but you don't get the opportunity very often to hear those worst case scenarios obviously there's some famous ones in vietnam um but just like you know for example the george floyd case we have rotten apples in every every profession um it does exist you know in in the military as well so what were some of the cases that ended up being completely fraudulent and obviously all these i'm i'm asking you about just the ones that you're allowed to talk to talk about and then we could transition to some that maybe that that were legitimate that people need to know about as well well unfortunately we never got to the stage where we could say they were fraudulent um or that they were factual we never managed to get to that stage where we could 100 say no this is this is bullshit or this is legit we just couldn't figure it out you know the, the amount of investigating we did it was it was impossible um what you've got to remember is these people, the majority of them were in an Afghan prison, having been detained by the British and then handed over. Um, and, you know, word gets out that the, the army will pay you, you know, pay you if you make a claim. So, you know, whether they were abused, whether they weren't, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't determine. And it's not like you can get them to, pop it to the local police station and take a statement from them, a statement of complaint and, you know, get the details. It's, it's, it didn't work like that. Um, we didn't speak to any of them directly. All we had in the majority of cases was a, a two-line sentence of, of detained on this day, said this had happened to him, and that was it. You know, sometimes we've got a detainee number so we could determine when he was captured by what unit. Um, and you know you could go to that unit and say right this detainee do you remember him no right he's saying this right okay can't tell you whether it happened or not and you know that was what we were up against um trying to trying to prove or disprove a crime without having any evidence to for or against it was it was impossible so we we quite quickly got rid of some that we we couldn't you know, we couldn't investigate. And they were kind of, not got rid of, they were kind of discontinued until further evidence came to light, if ever. Well, there are definitely some grey areas, you know, and, and when you're under all these rules of engagement, you know, it's sometimes a... You hear of some of his accusations that, well, if that person had been killed by initial shot, it would be a non-issue anyway. Maybe someone was, you know, finished with a second shot. They just dropped their rifle, whatever. And I get, you know, the, the Geneva Convention and everything. But at that moment, when you've just watched that person kill several of your friends as a human being, I totally get it. But through the entire Afghani and or Iraqi conflict, were there any examples of where 
you know, British, American, whatever you were investigating at the time, that, that some of our men and women had acted in, you know, in a way that wasn't acceptable. So if you rewind 2000, beginning of 2012, I was involved in a very high profile investigation. Um, I was kind of seconded to it of, right, we're going to do some arrest stops. Um, and we need as many people we can get. Um, and we got a briefing that um, some head cam footage had been found um, of uh, some Royal Marines. And that, that video footage showed um, uh, an injured, assumed Taliban fighter uh, being dragged into some um, undergrowth and shot point blank, shot on a, you know, shot dead. Um, and it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite a famous case in the UK. The, uh, the guy was arrested by yours truly, claim to fame. Um, and yes, yeah, and sent, sent down for it. Um, and it was a massive, massive deal that, you know, he'd just seen his friends being blown up. Um, and, you know, and he got released early from prison because of his, the mental health issue that, you know, he, he was suffering with. PTSD from previous operations, um, and yeah, so that that was a, that was a big deal, um, and really the only reason that that was dealt with is because it was on camera. Yeah, but I think that's just it. It's it's not a black and white, you know, issue. And you know, if if like you had the over here, we've had. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was. Two Green Berets killed a seal, if I've got that right. And it was a blatant, you know. Was, that, they, was it in Africa somewhere, wasn't it? I think it was, was right? yeah. And he ended up yeah. like choking him to death or, or something like that. That's right, you know, yeah. that. That's a totally different conversation, you know. And then I want to get to the sexual abuse that I hear, you know, happens as well. But when it's, you know, when it's in combat, and like I said, that combatant could have been killed by your initial, you know, shots that you took that is a gray area and then you throw in yeah the, the mental health element of you, that same individual may well have just killed your best friend moments before you know i think that that is you know that that's such a, a hard thing and you've got this 16 17 18 year old that you threw a uniform on throughout to the the desert and now they're having to make those split second you know decisions through trauma through sleep deprivation through just pure terror um, and then, you know, some, sometimes it's completely justified. Like I said, you know, you've got just murder on your hands, but other times it feels like they're, they're just kind of thrown under the bus so that, um, you know, an organization doesn't have to deal with it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I, you know, dealing with it at the time as a, as a policeman, you, you look at it and you say, well, we're not above the law. We go out there, we do our job, but we still have to, you know, abide by the law we can't go around murdering people you know we are the army and we have high standards but we're not like them and them being the taliban um and i was and i was very black and white of you know they, they've committed a crime and that i will bring them to justice you know but it's, it's only since um that you kind of think well yeah maybe there was more to it than you know cold-blooded murder or maybe there was more to it than there you know, their actions. Um, and, you know, it's not an excuse. Um, but, you know, sometimes you think, oh, maybe this could have been prevented. Maybe we shouldn't have sent him on that patrol yet again, you know, after he's just got, you know, got blown up. Or, do, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's, a diff it's a difficult one because there are, 
you know, some Romans, as there are in society, you know, in the military, the cross-section of society. Um, but yeah, it's a, it is a difficult one. Now, another kind of uh, issue that I hear, um, again, I'm sure it's, it's, it's a very small amount, but it's enough to cause a lot of, you know, pain, I'm sure, within the community is, is sexual assault. So was that anything that you kind of were exposed to and had to kind of um, mitigate as well or, or, you know, deal with? Oh, yeah, lots, lots of, um, and it was more back in the, in the UK kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, a lot of these, there were kids, a lot of them, um, and obviously a lot of alcohol is always involved. Um, again, I, I think the lines were very blurred on what you can and can't do to each other. Um, and, you know, we were dealing with them regularly, regularly dealing with sexual assaults. Um, but then I'd say no more so than the civilian police. It's just we were, you know, the military live on top of each other. Um, and it's more prevalent in the military, I guess, because, you know, there are that, you know, that environment, you're just in that environment where you can do it. You know, you're away from home. You know, you're on your own and, you know, you could become someone else and you might just come back from tour. Do you know what I mean? So it's, um, and they're very difficult to, to investigate. As for any policeman, I'll tell you, it's very difficult to investigate. Uh, he said, she said, you know, um, and a lot of the time they're not necessarily followed through because you then have to go back to your unit and be, being the, the guy or the girl that's cried rape or you're the guy that's been accused of rape, you know? So it's they're very, very difficult to deal with. Very difficult to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I can see how you know, challenging it would be. But, I mean, there's a one case... Oh God, I wish I wish my memory is better than it is, but I think it was I want to say in Arizona or somewhere where um, uh, one of the members of the military, female men, member of the military, was actually found murdered. You know, so you know again to the absolute extreme. So clearly, there's as you said, a wrong and someone, a predator within you know wearing a uniform that that shouldn't be in there. And you do get a lot of cry wolf from all types of you know people who screw it up. Then for the ones that are truly assaulted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and you know, how do you how do you determine that? How do you know who's making this up? You know, just for the attention, or who do you know? You know, how do you know that this person is legitimate, and that you know this person that's doing this isn't just a, some pissed up teenage boy, but is actually a sexual predator? You know, and it's very difficult to determine that. Absolutely. Now, with all these investigations, were you doing them all on British soil, or did you actually deploy forward? Yeah, so the war crimes one, as we'll call it, uh, I deployed to Afghanistan twice and Iraq twice as part of the investigation. Right. So you obviously have all these cases that you're studying. So you're having, you know, like 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 Lisa, for example, you're you're seeing photos. You're, you're dealing with the the victims of these crimes. So you have got that emotional element there. But I'll pose that same question to you that I talked about with other people. So were there any moments where you found yourself in, you know, wherever it was, deployed forwardly, um, where regardless of the politics, you witnessed some atrocities that you realized there were horrible people that needed to be taken care of? No. No? No. I think I was quite lucky that because I was in a policing role, in investigating something that already happened, um, 
I, I wasn't in, ever put in that position. So I think I was quite lucky. So conversely then, was your trauma, was there a large element of trauma through the investigations themselves and the crime scene photos and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Um, so the investigation was an alleged homicide, multiple homicide. And, you know, we were dealing with a crime that was committed in Afghanistan, thousands of miles away. And um, things happened in 2011. So you're looking at, you know, we were eight, eight years later, no scene, no witnesses, no bodies, no forensics, no anything. And the only thing we did have was the report um, that was compiled by the unit on, on that operation, um, which detailed what, what had happened. Now, along with these um, reports would be photographs of the deceased or the enemy killed in action, EKIA as they were referred. Um, and these weren't crime scene photos. They were um, death photos, if you like. Um, and they, some of them are horrendous. Um, and dealing with a dead body, James, you'll probably attest to this, that you can smell it. You can smell death. Looking at those pictures, I could smell that room. I could smell the congealed blood. You know, I could, you know that horrible. Yeah, it was. Uh, it wasn't nice. And, we, and I was looking at these every day for eight years. I was on that operation um, every single day. I was looking at them, um, and you know, you know, at the time you think, oh, you know, this guy's got a big hole in his head, you know, and you kind of laugh it off not really thinking anything of it. And then after a while, you kind of get to the stage where you don't want to go into a darkened room in case when you turn the lights on, those bodies are, are in there. Um, and that's when it really started to affect me and I didn't want to look at them anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I got to the stage where I didn't need to look at them anymore. I know exactly what those bodies look like. You know, every time I close my eyes, I can see what they look like. But we, we tended to brief a lot of people because obviously it was quite a high profile investigation a lot of people wanted to know what was going on and we'd bring these pictures up on a powerpoint presentation why whether it's for the shock factor or what um, i could tell you there was multiple dead bodies in a room without having to show you the, the gory details but it kind of became a kind of sideshow and everyone wanted to see these photographs um, and honestly they were horrendous they were absolutely horrendous it, you know it in some of them, there was just one single dead body. Others, there was multiple dead bodies. Um, and, you know, like being shot in the face uh, doesn't leave, you know, a pretty picture, literally. And you're looking at those pictures. Um, yeah, it wasn't brilliant. Well, staying on that topic, I want to get to, to the other side of that question in a second. But with that... You know, you're you have this high stress. I'm sure there's even an element of uh, being the military member. Excuse me, the the law enforcement member within the military. Maybe not having as many friends as some of the other you know parts of the community. So you have that that element of stress as well. Um, at what point did you start to feel the pressure of all that yourself, like the the mental health side? Um, I didn't know it at the time, but I knew something was wrong. Um, and it wasn't until I went to Iraq in 2000 and 
19 and I started to feel strange and I can't describe it any better than, than feeling strange. Something wasn't right. And I remember taking statements off soldiers that had been involved in these operations. And all of a sudden I, was, I couldn't remember what they just said. Literally I was writing it down and I'd stop mid sentence and say, can you say that again? And I'll do it again. And I, you know, and it would just go out of my head. Um, and I started feeling sick all the time, um, trouble sleeping. And, you know, it's in Iraq, it's a different environment, it's hot, you know, and it's dangerous out there. And you just think, oh, that's it's probably just that. But then that started getting worse when I came home from there. And I, you know, I didn't get shot at, I didn't get blown up. I was just out there taking a few statements from soldiers. And a bit of that was when it hit me that something's not quite right. So with that being said, so you start to feel different and I can totally relate about that, by the way, even just from a sleep de deprivation and, and I think probably TBI element too. I, I did martial arts for a long time and that fogginess and that just kind of, I always describe it as just feeling like I'm underwater. I'm not sad, I'm not, but but I don't, I feel like I'm the color gray. I don't know if that, that kind of resonates with you at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, where did that take you? Did you find yourself at a low place first? Did you immediately start help, you know, asking for help? Where, where did that journey lead to? That journey from there led to not letting go. That led to get me back out to Iraq. And I did. A few weeks ago, I went straight back out there. Um, because I knew if I come back, I'm going to have to deal with this. And if I don't have anything to go to, to deal with, you know, this is going to, this monster is going to take over. So I threw myself into my work. Um, I did everything that I could to get out on operations, to go out to take statements, you know, be out of the office, um, to, to focus on anything else but life and, the, and what I had to deal with. Um, when I was home, I was drinking too much. Um, and yeah, it, it just snowballed from there um, until I went to Afghanistan. So I went to, went to Iraq twice, came back, turned back around and went out to Afghanistan for the second time. And it was then that I, I knew that was it, that if I don't do something now, I'm going to end up dead. Um, and I remember being sat in my room. So we were, when I went to Afghanistan, we were on American FOB. And it, normally you're, you're in a room with, I don't know, five, six, seven other, other blokes. But luckily we got ensuite rooms, believe it or not, in this American camp. It's Americans for you, know how to live. <laughs> and, um, you know, you, you finish your day's work and you just sit there with your iPad watching Netflix. And I remember having my pistol loaded just on the desk next to me. And I was looking, I looked at it and, uh, and I just picked it up and felt the weight of it in my hand. And I kind of thought to myself, what would happen if I killed myself right now? So I made it ready, put it to the side of my head and my, my finger just started squeezing. And I didn't think to myself, oh, I'm going to commit suicide now. It was more of a, I wonder what would happen if I do this. And for, for whatever reason, I just stopped and put it down. And it wasn't a, 
horrified. Oh my god, I nearly killed myself. It was just uh, not today. I'm not going to do this out here. I'm not going to do this where someone has to come and scoop my brains up and someone has to fly my body back to the UK and someone has to come and tell my wife. I had, I was in control of when I was going to die and when I was going to commit suicide because I knew I was going to. Um, early on in my SIB career, so we rewind a little bit, I went to suicide of a soldier who I'd had either just come back or was just going on tour. And I was the first responder being the SIB. You know, I'm, I'm the detective here. I'm, this is my job. And no one had been in the room. And I walked in there and there he was, just hanging from his wardrobe. Um, and I could, I could still see his face. I could still see his face now, as you'll probably, you know, understand what I'm saying is like you, you they, they stick with you that that look um, and I just he was in a uniform he was in military uniform and something just struck a chord with me that this guy's a soldier I'm a soldier um, and he's killed himself and it all made sense to me why he'd done it I don't know why he'd done it I don't have a clue but it made sense that he had taken his own life and I think it was the sense of being in control of my own destiny of right if I if I'm I'm in a bad place and if I want to die, I'm going to do it myself. So I would, when I couldn't sleep, I would sit and think about it. So, right, I'm going to do this. And then I do that. Right. Yeah. I've got the plan. And I, and I used to think, right, I know where I'm going to do it. Right. I'm going to hang myself. And I'm going to do it in the garage. I've got a noose there. And it was all planned out. Um, I was ready to do it whenever I decided. Um, so I think that's when I was in Afghanistan and I was, you know, I had that gun to my head. I thought, do you know what? No, I'm not doing it. This, is, this isn't how I planned it. Um, so when we came home, I told my wife what happened and she literally said, she said, right, get down to the, see the doctor now. And I walked in there, brazen as you like, I said, right, this happened. You know, so some people say the most difficult part of it is to, speak up and go, not, it wasn't for me I just walked in there and said right I just tried to kill myself in Afghanistan not really realising what the repercussions were going to be um, for me all I wanted to do was deploy all I wanted to do was be a soldier be a policeman and as soon as I came out and said that that was it that was that was a career stopper and that was the hardest thing to deal with for me than actually having the PTSD um, and, and how it was affecting me if I'm honest, you know, I knew I was drinking too much. Um, you know, all, they, all that kind of thing, you know, the, the classics, if you like. Um, but it, it didn't bother me. None of it bothered me. It bothered everyone else around me, but it didn't bother me. So that was it, really, from first going to see the doctor. Oh, we think you've got PTSD. Now, classic doctor, you're asking about antidepressants you'll be fine. And that's what I've got. And from then on, I just pulled the pin. Um, and my life in September to December 19 just imploded. And it was all my, all my own doing. Um, I didn't care about anything, didn't care about the investigation, didn't care about my appearance. Um, stopped shaving, which in the military is a, is a big deal. Stopped dying in my uniform. Um, just acted like a complete arsehole. My behaviour was reckless, but I didn't care. I didn't care about anything else. 
Um, and I knew that this was all leading up to me taking my own life when I wanted to do it. And that's, that was kind of, that's, yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of it really. That was kind of my, from knowing something was wrong to, well, no, to acting on, acting on it to, you know, getting help was a relatively short period, but I've known from for years that something was wrong. I remember when I first met my wife, I said to her, I'm going to have a breakdown one day, tongue in cheek, saying that. Because everything I dealt with in London, you know, being at the bombings, um, dealing with a lot of death in the Met, um, I, I knew that, you know, I said, oh, I've dealt with a lot of stuff, you know. Little did I know that it was coming. And it was just, I think that one suicide was just, the doc, my doctor described it as, a, as Jenga. And I just pulled out that last block and that was it. Just the whole thing came down. Well, you, you touched on a couple of, you know, interesting because it had comes up over and over again. Firstly, the deploying. We always look at drinking as a big red flag. Obviously, something like opiates are a big red flag. You know, anger is a big red flag. But working is another elephant in the room. It's another glaringly obvious thing that none of us talk about. So in the fire service, you have these, you know, men and women who just take up all the overtime. And at first you're like, oh, they must be obsessed with money, blah, blah, blah. And then as you, as you have with this kind of journey, as I start going through and becoming more educated about all these people that come on the show, I look back and go, oh, these people are staying busy because of what's going on in their head. It's not about money. It's that they sure as shit don't want to be at the fire. So yeah, they might have a shitty marriage. Maybe that's part of it. But over and above, who would rather be at a fire station than be with their wife and children? I know one of sound mind, but we're not talking about sound mind. A sound mind doesn't pick up a pistol and apply pressure to the trigger, which has happened so many times with people you know, on this show. The other thing which I'll ask you, which seems to be a, a common denominator, is... A lot of people say, oh, suicide is so selfish. How could they? Um, and yet when you hear stories from people who are at that point, who had planned, who had literally been squeezing the trigger, sometimes the firing pin had gone off and it hadn't, or it hadn't gone off, you know, the, the, the round hadn't fired. Um, and some of them have jumped off the bridge, shot themselves and, and were on this show to talk about it, which is, you know, incredible. But it's that feeling of being a burden. The brain is so miswired that they feel like the world is better off without them. Even if, as what happened in Florida here, you and your partner both take your own lives, leaving an infant behind. So was that an yeah. element yeah. for you as well? I don't... It wasn't selfish because I didn't care about how it affected. I know that kind of contradicts, but it, I wasn't doing it in spite of anyone else. Well, I think it's the opposite. So when these people... are are feeling like a burden, they're selfless in their miswired minds. So they're not being selfish. They're Absolutely. they're trying to make the yeah. world better by removing themselves from it, which makes no sense to anyone on the outside, but makes perfect sense to them in the middle of a crisis. Yeah, I think for me, it was being in control. I could control when and how. Um, and I, and I, I didn't know that I was in pain I didn't know what was going on in my head. I just knew that I had the, I control of this one thing and that was going to be when I was going to take my life. And I didn't think about my wife, didn't think about my kids. Um, at the time, I, you know, I have since obviously 
thought about my kids growing up without a dad and widow and my wife, but it's difficult to explain what you're thinking is at that moment and what your, your rationale is and what your reasons are for wanting to commit suicide. Some people could say, oh yeah, I was, I was depressed or, do you know, stuff like that. Not for me, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't as cut and dry as, as that. Um, and it wasn't, I don't think it was, it was as easy to say that I don't want to be a burden to anyone. I just didn't want to, whatever it was, I didn't want to feel it anymore, but I was in control of when that was going to stop. Now, again, another element that seems to to be a resounding common denominator is organizational stress. So the environment in which you work, my last fire department was a perfect fucking example of that. Um, and in that environment, you've lost that autonomy. You've lost that control of your life. Was that an element that, that you know, were you in that kind of environment that maybe that control of that moment was control within the lack of control that you were working around? Yeah. Absolutely. And for me, I think it was more not getting my own way with how the investigation was going. Um, the investigation was getting very close to being concluded. And to me, work still had to be done. We, we were nowhere near finished. You know, I was a staff sergeant. What, you know, my opinion matters not. But I had, I had work to do. Um, and so I put myself under a lot of pressure. Of I've got to find that golden nugget of evidence to bring these people to justice um so i would de- deploy all the time i would go out on every statement to, to make sure i got it right and uh, to make sure no one no one else fucked it up um and i'm not saying that no one was good enough it was i had to i had to go and do it to make sure it was done properly and then when you're told thanks but no thanks the, the job's done you know pack your bags you're going home that and that's what broke me I think that pressure of getting it done without ruffling too many feathers is, is what, yeah, that's what broke me. And I remember having a conversation with my good friend um, that everyone back in the UK was talking about what I was doing out there, but in a bad light, saying, oh, he's only out there, you know, for the money and for the medals and stuff. And as soon as I finished that phone conversation, that's my way, I walked in my room and that was it. I was sat there mulling it over what people say about to me back in the UK and that was it and it was that it was following that that yeah which is strange isn't it it's, it's strange what makes you snap no it is but again you know when when you try and use a rational mind to understand an irrational mind you're always going to left without any answers because when you look at the thought process of someone who is suicidal or homicidal it doesn't make any sense because the brain is so miswired by that point so, for example, saying, oh, that person took their life. How could they do that? They're so selfish. Think about your wife and kids. Well, a lot of these people were like, I was. Because at that moment, I was the biggest piece of shit on the planet and they'd be better off without me. The reality was you move, you, you leave the pain with the, the people that you leave behind. Now, Absolutely, yeah. you've got this compounding element, I'm sure. I'm assuming your sleep was probably a bit shit this time as well, to add everything. At that time? Yeah. Uh, I didn't sleep. Yeah. Okay, I, I just I guess um, that at all. So yeah, another um, compounding element. But yeah, like I said, I, I the way I just sit there planning my own suicide. I mean, it's and that's how I and you know a lot of the time I was um, I couldn't sleep because as soon as I started closing my eyes, I'd see pictures. You know, I I'd start having the intrusive thoughts and you know and. 
I remember once that as my little girl was just born when I went to that suicide I was telling you about and I was putting her down in her crib and I didn't want to turn around because I knew he was hanging in the wardrobe behind me. Um, so yeah, I couldn't sleep after that and I couldn't go out to the bathroom or I walked past the, the stairs that were dark. You know, I've been a policeman for, at this point, I've been a policeman for like 10, 12 years. You know, what am I scared of? But that, and that's when I knew, you know, no, it's not when I knew. I, I knew I was aware of it, but didn't know what it was. Um, and yeah, you know, I couldn't watch scary films or it, Stephen King's It. I used to see Pennywise all the time. And what a strange thing to see. But I knew, I think because I'd seen that film when I was in a bad place, it kind of stuck in, stuck in my brain. And it used to terrify me. Um, and those, these are the kind of things I'd stay up at night thinking about. Well, I've, ta- I've talked about this a lot with people. You know, when, when I was a teenager, I was into horror films. For, there was like a phase, like a, I don't know, one, two-year phase. And then fast forward a long, long time, and I became a firefighter and a paramedic and, you know, saw 14 years of horrible shit. And I hate those now. I even hate, I mean, you know, the, the violent films, if it's kind of suggestive violence, that's fine. If it's graphic violence, like, you know, I don't want to see that. And it really makes you then, and it's different. It, you know, is, is fantasy and you know, there aren't really giant clowns living in, in brains that eat children, you know, so you can, you can, you know, that becomes obviously a, a kind of metaphor for the shit that, that you're dealing with. But the actual horror and gore and these torture films, you know, it makes you step back when you've been around that in real life. Be like, so you've been working in, you know, Sainsbury's from nine till five and you're like, it's been a hell of a day. I'm just going to go and wind and watch a cabin full of teenagers get murdered and mutilated. So that will help me, you know, sleep. It's like when you think about it, it's absolute insanity because, yeah, the Hitchcock and the Inferred stuff was there was some great storytelling. But some of some of the horror movies that we have now, you got to question why people find that entertaining. But certainly the professions that have seen real life trauma, you know, I find normally that's a a resounding theme that most of us do not want to watch that shit anymore because we've seen it in real life and there's nothing entertaining about it whatsoever. No, I can't watch um, terrorist films, if you like, you know, with suicide bombers. Um, I think there's a film, is it London Has Fallen? It's one of those series of films. Yeah, that Gerard you know, Butler or one of those yeah, ones. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And when, at the beginning, London's getting blown up, and you're like, I turned it straight off. I'm like, oh, I can't watch this. And, you know, it's just because it's not entertainment, because that's I've lived and breathed it, you know. I can't watch people getting blown up. Well, with that, I, t- I totally skirted over that. So you were present at 7-7, you know, London's mm-hmm. 9-11. So, you know, f- wherever you want to go, I'm not trying to force you to relive the whole thing. But, no, you know, t- um, talk to me about you know, your you experience. I, I look back at that and that's not a trauma for me. It's not one of my big T's, as they call it. Um, I look back at that with, with pride and I think that's kind of one of the not the best things I've done, but one of the things I've looked back and gone, I was there. Um, and I remember it clear as day. It's one of the, thing, the things I do remember. Nice sunny day in July, early turn. Um, probably been on shift hour, hour and a half, something like that. Um, walking uh, on, on foot patrol. And then all of a sudden got called to go back to the station. Um, so we hopped on a bus, funnily enough, to get back to the police station as quick as we could. 
and my mum started ringing me when I was on the bus. I said, oh, I've just put the news on and something's happening in central London. I was like, oh, okay, well, what's it saying? Oh, a, an underground transformer has exploded and it's, it's hit a train. All right, okay, fine. You know, we'll, we'll put it on down to, to central London, shall we? So we all jumped on a bus, flying down into London, in the centre of London, 85 miles an hour, wrong side of the road. And it wasn't until we got there that we knew that London was under attack. Um, and we pulled up at King's Cross and it was just, it was chaos, but it was organised chaos. Everyone knew what they were doing. Um, and I was in awe. I'll be honest, I was in awe of the paramedics and the fire service because they were just slick with what they were doing. Um, even, you know, even the little things that I, you notice of all the ambulances were parked on one side of the road, all spaced out correctly. All the fire engines were parked, spaced out correctly, you know, on the right. So there was access in and out, well drilled, um, things like that. And there I was, you know, just like, how old was I then? 22? Just running about. It's like, right, let's just get down onto that tube, shall we? And then down we went. And it was just, yeah, it was just catastrophic what happened down there. You don't even think, you don't even think you're going to go and walk on a, the tracks of a tube train. Do you know what I mean? On the underground, you don't think you're ever going to do that. Why would you ever do that? And there you are, you walk down there and there's this mangled carcass of a, an underground train. Um, and, you know, and we did, we did our, we did our bit. We helped people out. We, you know, we were kind of bystanders compared to like what the, the actual um, first responders did. You know, we were just, it, yeah, it was a crime scene. So we had to do our best. But, you know, we were just getting people off, essentially. Um, and then it wasn't until after that, really, that you, you know, you can start, you can smell that acrid burning smell, which you probably know quite well. As, um, and, you know, and that, that lasts with you for quite a, quite a while. Um, and you see the people's faces and you see the, the bits of body that are lying about and stuff like that. And, you know, and that stays with you. But at, at that time, it was get back to work. You know, I remember, you know, I mentioned my brother was ill and I remember going to see my chief inspector saying, can I have some time off? Um, you know, a bit of, bit of downtime to go and see my brother in hospital. No, 54 people have just been killed. You know, I haven't any time off. And that was it. And that was the no debriefing, no offer of counselling, just get back to work. Um, and, you know, I can, I can see why, because we were under attack. You know, my first day off, Following that was the 21st of July, which, for those who don't know, was the, the second um, bombing attempt, the failed bombing attempt. So, right, get back to work, we're under attack again. You know, so you didn't really get any respite from it for, for a good few weeks. And then all of a sudden, um, right, you're back on normal duties again, go and give that person a parking ticket. And you're like, well, don't really want to. You know, I've just, just seen the worst thing I've ever seen in my life and now you want me to give someone a parking ticket um so that yeah I, I look back at that with you know with a great sense of pride and I was there um it's the smaller things I, was, I dealt with in the Met which kind of stuck with me the most and one of my big T's was a, a job which was just a, a simple job that just went wrong um which I think was my first taste of trauma first hand if that makes sense, which I'm happy to 
talk about if you want to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, if that if if seven seven was not a big T, but this event was, and yeah, if you want to, you know, walk through that door, absolutely. Well, I, I say it's, it wasn't a big T. It was it was up there, um, but you know, I just it, it doesn't affect me like I thought it would, and I always thought that that was the source of my um, my mental health issues was was the bombings, but you know, since going through a lot of therapy, it, it turns out it, it wasn't actually that big a T for me. The, the biggest one was simple job, um, assist social services, removing two children from a family home, um, reports of abusive parents, run of the mill kind of call for us going to, you know, prevent a breach of the peace. So we turned up, we we're supposed to do it at the beginning of the shift. It turned out being right at the end because they always are. The griefy calls always at the end of the shift. We met up with social services. They explained that the grandmother had reported the, these children being abused by her daughter and that the grandchildren were at, the, at her home um, and she's waiting for us. No one else in the home, nothing to worry about. You know, let's just go get it done. So, right, yeah, fine, easy. Knock on the door. Uh, it turns out that the grandma's there. The mum's there, the dad's there, and two family friends and the two kids. Now, this flat we went into was a, a teeny tiny little one up, one down kind of house converted into two flats. It was tiny. So, social services took the parents and the grandma to one side and said, Right, this is what's happening. And the whole place just erupted. And I mean, it, it just, it was my first chaotic situation I've ever dealt with. And I looked to my colleague, who was quite experienced, and he was at the bottom of the stairs. And I was stood at the top of these stairs, like, what the hell am I going to do here? Like, what, you know, the, the dad was threatening to kill me if I tried to take his kids. So I was like, oh, well, I need some help here. So I radioed up and said, right, we have assistance on this, on this call. And it just so happened that a suspect had made off from police on the road behind. And every unit in North London was probably on that call. So they all just came around the corner to help us out. I know there was like 20 police cars parked outside it. And then loads of people just flooded this flat. And it was just, it was just chaos. Um, and I remember seeing this grandma in the kitchen. Um, and, you know, like plates were crashing and smashing and stuff. And she started stuffing her face with something. Um, and I just, and I looked at her and I was like, is she taking pills? And I just froze. And I froze and I, I watched her do this and I was just helpless. I couldn't move. I couldn't say anything. Um, and, and it was, and that was it. And an ambulance came. Someone had called an ambulance. We still, to this day, don't know who it was. Um, and the ambulance turned up and said, oh, does anyone need medical attention? I said, I don't think so, but I'll go and check. So I spoke to the, the, woman, the grandma and I said, oh, there's an ambulance out here. Do you, need, you know, do you need medical attention? She said, get the fuck out of my house. So I was like, right, fine. Off I went, you know. Turns out an hour later she died. She'd taken an overdose while we were there, while I was stood in front of her. And that stuck with me forever. Um, you know, I was, I was brand new. I was still a probationer. But it was that being powerless and couldn't do anything. My, like, it was awful. And uh, someone died as a result of my inaction. And that's, and that's what has bothered me. And that's been my, you know, that's what the, the center of my, my PTSD, um, 
therapy was about, to be honest. Not, not you know, it's not a big, sexy, you know, bombing or, you know, anything like that. It was just something I couldn't, again, couldn't control. You couldn't see a pattern here that I need to be in control of everything. But it was just the helplessness, not knowing what to do. Um, and someone dying, it was, um, it was awful. And I, and I went to coroner's court. Um, and in coroner's court, the family get to ask you questions directly. And they were asking me questions like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And I, and I couldn't answer it. And I thought, like, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't do that. I don't know why I didn't do this. Um, and the coroner said, he said to me that you were, you were young, you were in way over your head. You're not responsible. But I was, I knew that I was because I didn't do anything. And, um, and I, I've kept that with me for 18 years. Like that. I talk about this every so often when it comes to training. And as a young police officer, firefighter, paramedic, EMT, you know, corrections officer, dispatcher, when you're first in the job, really you're at the mercy of the organization, the level of training, and then the, the stress training as well, you know, the training under duress. Um, but when it comes, you know, deeper into your career, it becomes your ownership element. I think the one thing that has helped me, and I've had this, you know, with lots of other people as well, the inability to save is crushing. And I talk about this all the time. I'm, I'm the, yeah. I'm the black cloud. I'm the dude. If you have a cardiac arrest, you're not making it back. I was that medic. Um, not hopefully because of my shitty skills, but just that was, <laughs> I just, that was my luck, you know, I, that's why I don't go to casinos. Um, but, uh, but the, the, the healing element was I knew that I trained and I knew I'd taken my job seriously. And as we talked about before we started recording, I took my vacation days and I took extra training classes, pediatric, you know, airways and extrication. Even though I was never on any specialty team, I just want to be the best at every skill I could. The guilt and shame that comes with losing someone and then questioning if you could have done something different. I can see how that would be more crushing than being part of a well-orchestrated rescue and a mass bombing where you were a part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, they don't train you how to deal with a suicidal person. They don't, they didn't deal, train you how to deal with people threatening to kill you. Um, they don't, they don't train you, you know, first aid. When I, when I joined, they don't, you know, teach you anything like that. They show you, well, this is how you've wrapped your baton and this is how you hit someone on the leg, shout and get back. But when you're in a teeny tiny little flat and you're, you're scrapping with someone, they don't, they don't teach you how to deal with that. And then they also don't teach you what to do when your colleague is bolted it, leading you to it on your own. And then they definitely don't teach you how to deal with the aftermath of what you've just done. And, and I get that's something that can't be taught, but they don't even try. They don't say that, you know, this is, these are the open doors that we've got. You know, this is what we can and can't do. None of that. Yeah. And I think that's sadly, that's the old way of doing it. And I've had so many people on here from World War II veterans and Auschwitz survivors all the way through to, you know, people that are still wearing uniform today. And we can't change what's already happened, but we can learn from all those and start today. And I think that's why these stories are so important. I want to go to your journey, your upswing, your journey out of that. But before we do, there, especially during this last couple of years, there really was an, a, an amazing sense of community in America on 912. 
we witnessed the country come together, especially New York. I mean, the country to a point, but most of us were completely detached. But in New York, you watched it come together. As a, a Brit living in the US, you know, an American technically, I was so fucking proud of Londoners, what I saw on, on the 8th. When everyone went mm -hmm. back to work and was like, fuck you, terrorists, we are, because yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, with, with the, the Irish, um, conflicts that we had when I was a little kid and I was kind of exposed to that because I lived by an MOD base. So I had to check, you know, our cars for bombs every time we left the farm, which was super fun. Um, but just that we will not be moved, um, kind of, you know, stiff upper lip mentality. If the processing of trauma is separate, but that getting back to it, you're not going to shake us. That unification of all colors and creeds, the same way as you saw at the base of Grenfell, mosques and churches and, you know, um, temples were all coming together and just helping. Was that something that you witnessed with your own eyes as well? Absolutely. And it wasn't the 8th, it was the evening of the 7th. People were back to normal. Yeah, yeah. And yeah like you wouldn't the next day you wouldn't have known anything had happened apart from there were replacement buses which were inconvenient in some people uh, and that was it it was, it was definitely the keep calm and carry on actually that london's always had i think and you see it you know we've had a few terrorist incidents over the last few years and you know, there's pictures of people running you know terrorist incidents of people running out of pubs with still holding their pint because no terrorist can stop me having a beer I paid seven quid for in central London. Or fighting you know, so with, that a, is... with a narwhal. I mean, sorry, was it a what? Yeah, say? yeah, that's right. It was a, a narwhal horn. Yeah. Narwhal, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And after yeah, I yeah. heard the story, there was two horns. Yeah, yeah. The first one broke, so he went back and grabbed the second that's one, right. from what I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. London, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, so so I'm sorry, I kind of cut you off though. So so what else no, are you okay. seeing? Um, Just just normal i think that's it i think that's just it. it was just normal it was just and that it was back to normal but we didn't want to be as in the police we didn't want to be back to normal we didn't want to be back you know sticking people on for not wearing their seatbelt and do you know what i mean it was that was where the difference was we weren't back to normal because we were doing extra shifts we were doing you know um what you call mutual aid where you'd come out from your little boroughs and you'd go into central London on a security detail, or we spent a lot of time in the morgue where all the victims of the bombings had gone. Um, and remember that a body is an exhibit is evidence. So obviously they've got to be that chain of evidence. So we would get sent um, to watch their autopsies um, because it was evidence. So we had to do that. And that was our, that was our routine. Everyone else was, was back to normal. Which was which was a good thing, um, but but sometimes you're like, how can you be like this when this has just happened? You know, which is quite difficult sometimes to get your head around that people do go back to normal quite quickly, and you want you want to be like, no, this is you know this is an awful thing that's happened. You know, how can you just you know, it's it's strange, it is strange, but you you can't let terrorism win, and you've got to show that you're not afraid. You know, even though when you talk to the first responders, you talk to the officers that, you know, sh shoot the, the suicide bomber, they're terrified. You know, and sometimes the terrorist does win for that one person, you know, because it will affect them. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that perspective. I mean, you're right, it's a paradox. I mean, we want to move on, but yeah, there's a lot of people processing that entire event that are not ready to issue speeding tickets, as you said. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, clear as day saying, no, I'm not, I'm not bringing any traffic reports in today. I'm not doing it. Uh, my boss wasn't too happy about it, but you know, that was just, that was, you know, because we didn't want to. Yeah. No. And it's totally understandable. It really, you almost kind of like admire the, the public of, you know, the, the people of London and you don't want to, <laughs> you know, bother yeah, them with that. Like, Hey, you know, they yeah. were just bombed and they went back and we just lay off yeah. the seatbelts and, you know, tickets for a yeah, couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, people, you were just bombed, but people still go around speeding and not wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah, it was, a it was, a, it was a really strange time, really strange in London. Um, but, you know, I, I'm from a small town. You don't expect to be dealing with a, you know, multiple terrorism, terrorist attack. No. Um, and, you know, and it's, you know, go, oh, let's go back to normal now. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Well, we had that. I mean, I actually wasn't on it. I was in, in Portugal when it happened, but Pulse was my second due. So when I was at the previous fire department, they they weren't ours. There was the city of Orlando, but then we were their neighbors. So you talk about mutual aid. Any of their calls that they weren't at home for, we ran on. So, you know, oh, yeah. I, I missed that. A lot of my friends, you know, responded to Pulse. But yeah, we had that right on our doorstep, a, a club that I would pass every time I went to and from the hospital I transported to. And it was a club. It was a club with, you know, we knew it was a, a gay club and that was it. And then one day yeah. there's an absolute massacre there. So yeah, you, yeah, just, yeah. you just never know. And, you know, to this yeah. day, that is still a shrine. And they haven't got to yeah. the point where they're able to move forward yet. Yeah. Whereas King's Cross and whatever is a, you know, business is normal. Mm-hmm. A little plaque in the corner somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you may remember the fire at King's Cross. Oh, yeah. Horrendous. Uh, was it in the 80s, I think? Um, you know, but it was rebuilt and start again. You know, because we can't live without King's Cross train station. Do you know what I mean? So it, it's got to be, you know, we've got to get it back up and running again. And you know, I think it was quite quickly that they got it up and running again. Well, I think the biggest thing as well, I think you really honour the fallen by moving the needle for it not happening again. You know what I mean? So, for example, Grenfell, when you've got the company that put the cladding on that's still fighting to this day and these residents, some of them still haven't, you know, still in temporary housing, you know, that and then they're throwing the, the London Fire Brigade under the bus for that as well that has not moved forward. That's you know horrendous. But if you can, you know, sadly I've seen some of the negative ways of fighting terrorism, like these awful, you know, giant bollards that you have all around the Houses of Parliament now and yeah. you know, which is heartbreaking. It's a beautiful city and now it's got all these, you know, industrial steel, you know, barricades everywhere. But yeah, I mean you you can't undo it. You make sure that you respectfully remember and have, you know, kind of areas where you pay tribute to the people who lost their lives but for our community and the military you make sure it doesn't fucking happen again you know and, and I, we can't save everyone but i think that's the biggest thing we make ourselves you know fitter and stronger and better trained and you know hopefully actually give our men and women an environment to be better at their professions with training and staffing and you know equipment so that we can learn from what happened and hopefully prevent that happening again yeah, absolutely. Um, but sometimes I think, will we ever really prevent it happening again? I think we need to prepare for when it does happen again. Mm-hmm. Well, we, I think we can, we can narrow the window of opportunity for, yeah. for someone. Yeah. But then, you know, I think if someone wants to go and buy a knife and cut the head off a soldier in central London, there's very little you can do um, to stop that. It's just, 
you know, we were following that Lee Rigby um, when that happened. We were told, don't go out in uniform. Don't go out in any, you know, military fatigues or wear your military backpack or anything like that to stop that happening again. Um, you know, it soon wore off, you know. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, we, if we can mitigate the risk, you know, the, yeah. What was the uh, the backstory of the the murder in the Lee Rigby case? Because I know he was of African descent, wasn't he? But I think he hailed um, extremist fundamentalist Islam, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So Lee Rigby was um, just a soldier based in Woolwich in London. Um, was returning to barracks um, when two guys ran him over for the reason he had a military backpack on, um, and then decapitated him in the street well there were onlookers um and people were, were filming it and they were saying about um you know it was all for the their their cause whatever that might have been um yeah they're african descent um and it was all to do with our what we were doing in afghanistan in retaliation to that but you, you, you know we talked about how people see things as normal you watch the footage of that there's people just walking past like it's a an everyday thing where they, you know, just cut the head off a soldier in the middle of the street, which, you know, you watch that and you think, is that, is that now what society is that we can just walk past that? You know? Um, but yeah, that, that was, I think that I remember that happening because I was on duty that day. Um, and we covered London and being, obviously being a soldier, we were preparing to go up and deal with it, but we didn't, the Met police took that on. Uh, but yeah, just you know, another insane um, example of you know, what we have to deal with. You know, a soldier off duty. Um, yeah, well, it reminded me as well. Of, was it Keith Blakelock? Have I got that name right? Of the the, uh, the policeman. Yes, that was uh, beaten and decapitated uh, I, when we were kids. I remember when I when I was in training, um, I went up to on that same borough. So they they take you out on a day, and you you go around and they show you what policing's like. And we went down to um, Broadwater Farm, it was called. And you kind of drive down and then these big tower blocks and you drive like under them. And then they check, oh, that's where Keith Blakelock was killed. And you think, it's just kind of, it's eerie. Um, and yeah, that was, again, that was horrendous. Was that Tottenham area? Um, Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 yeah horrendous. And, th- and that all started because the police went, um, to arrest someone or something like that and someone ended up having a heart attack and dying and then uh, that was it it just um oh no i think i think maybe there might be a fire there or something and the fire brigade turned up and they got attacked and and the police turned up and yeah and that's what happened yeah awful well, there's a catalogue of death and destruction and disaster right there. Great, you know, Disney conversation. Um, yeah. But that being said, so, you know, you've got all the things that we talked about in your, your civilian career, then, you know, your work in the military, you're sitting there, you've got the pistol. You're now acutely aware of being in this dark place. You've gone to see this provider that's given you medication, which happens, you know, over and over again here as well. What... What moment began the pendulum upswing and what were some of the tools that did work for you? The pendulum upswing was my final suicide attempt. I say final, as in the last time I I tried it, which was just before Christmas. Um, Friday the 13th, December, 
um, you know, things have got out of hand in my life and I made some mistakes and I was kind of dealing with some of that and that was it. I, I was done. What I had planned on doing all these years, I was just going to go and do it there and then. Um, so I took myself off to the garage, closed the door behind me. Um, and yeah, I was about to, to hang myself and my wife came in and she said, you know, what the hell are you doing? And I told her, I said, all right, I'm going to kill myself. And then my little girl came in to the garage and, and that was it. And she was like, daddy, what are you doing? And that was it. I was just, right, I can't, I can't do this when she's here. So my wife, um, she literally threw me in the back of an ambulance and said, you, you need to go and get some help. Um, and it wasn't until that time when I was, you know, in the back of an ambulance, hearing my kids screaming for me on the doorstep. Um, that I thought, right, this is, this is, I need, something needs to happen here. Um, and I went to a psychiatric ward um, where, you know, my, when I got there, my shoelaces were taken off me, my belt was taken off me, um, wasn't allowed my phone charger. And the gravity of the situation kicked in when she said, you're a vulnerable male. Um, you know, you're in the right age category for, for suicide. And I've never been called vulnerable in my life, ever. I'm not a vulnerable male. I'm a soldier. I've just got back from Afghanistan. Um, and that just knocked, knocked me down to earth. And I remember, and, yeah, and you know, there were some proper poorly people in there, you know, like um, like schizophrenics and people that had horrendous head injuries and were dealing with them. And, you know, the people that weren't fit to be in society because of their, their mental health. And there was me. There was nothing wrong with me. You know, I was having to queue up with my food for my food like I was at school and they had to make sure I had eaten everything. They'd come around and bring me my medicine, um, make sure I take it. And I was like, well, how is this happening to me? You know? And honestly, it was, it was that, I think that was worse. The realization of the situation I now find myself in, um, you know, and, I, and I'm locked away in a mental hospital. Um, and, uh, and I got, released shortly after that into the care of the MOD. And that was really where my journey um, started, I guess, was that day when I was taken into hospital. Um, and, you know, I got, I got um, transferred to the MOD and I went into the MOD mental health system, if you like, which very quickly grinds to a halt because there isn't any... Um, service for we were living down in Cornwall at the time um, and there was nothing down there um, Plymouth was the nearest one in Devon the nearest um, so you get you kind of get counselling to start with you get kind of um, you see a, a psychiatric nurse and they give you grounding techniques and all that kind of stuff to help you if you're you know you're in a bad place and they give you uh, tapes to listen to to help you sleep and you know all that kind of stuff that you look at and you just throw to one side you know I do not need this you know, I'm not, I'm not ever going to do these breathing exercises. Um, and it wasn't until I was out shopping with my wife and my kids and I had a panic attack um, in the shop because I couldn't stand to be around people anymore. And I was so anxious and I had to go and stand outside in the rain to bring me back, back down, you know, to where I was. It was, and that was the first time I ever thought, actually, you know, there is something to this. Maybe I should try this a bit more. Um, and yeah, you know, it kind of went on to CPN for a long time. 
Um, it just it was just chatting about it. It was just chatting through what was going on, what I was thinking, what I was feeling, which kind of helped. It helped me a lot talking about it because I'd never talked to anyone about it. Why would I ever do that? You know. Um, and then I finally got to see a psychiatrist um, who then dropped the bombshell that I was actually uh, bipolar as well. So not only was I dealing with PTSD, I also had bipolar chucked on top of that as well. So that, and that was a shock um, to me. Um, well, those two kind of go hand in hand, though, don't they? It's not. It's not like you were always bipolar, and then they, they had it as well. Like it sounds to me that the manic and the depressive element are kind of the the extremes of anxiety and depression. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and it's very much, uh, you know, what came first? Was it the bipolar that's maybe not deal with these traumas, or was it the the trauma that's you know kicked kicked off the bipolar? And that's something I'm still trying to get my head around this to to this day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very early on in my road to recovery and it, it, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where and when and why and what and I try it. And I, I look back at my army career and I think, was this element of my career, the bipolar or was it the PTSD or was that actually the me, you know, or was this bad part? Oh, was that because of the PTSD? Oh, it must've been the, the bipolar or it might've just been that, I was being a, a dick that day, you know, so it's, it's very difficult to try and get my head around what part of my life was what, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, I look back and the getting into 50 grand worth of debt was, was definitely the, the bipolar because I was buying stuff to, you know, make me happy. And I was, I couldn't control, you know, the, the hyper of a bipolar was stuff like that. And I remember telling my wife, she said, oh, the, the doctor thinks I'm bipolar. She was like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you are, you know, and it was like, oh, well, why didn't I know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, and it's, um, I, I look back at my career a lot and I think my bipolar had a lot to do with it, um, which is a, it's a strange, a strange thing because, I don't know, I wrestle with it. Am I bipolar or do I have bipolar? That's something I, I struggle with sometimes. You know, do I let it define me? And at the moment in my life, it does. That's that's who I am. Um, and I am still subject to the the hyperactivity or the, you know, the depression or, you know. But that's just, that is just life now. And I'm slowly, slowly getting there. Um, and it's, it's now dealing with the life outside the military with bipolar um, and running my own business, which is, yeah which is fun on its own well another thing that i hear a lot now just very recently um that is completely being attributed again to trauma and you know the, the mental health side is ocd when i was young ocd was those crazy people that would flick the light switch 12 times before they left the house and now i realize well no again like i think it's the part of that control in a world of chaos ocd and i've had you know guests that say they have to have i think you called it ship shape is talking about his granddad and the influence but yeah on his desk you know all the pencils are a certain degree and he's not crazy but again these are all kind of side effects i think of trauma so you know i think that you're someone who has bipolar not it's not defined by you but as we're kind of learning more and more about psychology say we you know the 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 layman not the expert um 
we're realizing that, yeah, I mean, just like a bomb in the middle of London, it can injure people in a thousand different ways. Well, I think that's the thing with trauma too. How it affects you and how it affects me are totally different, but it's the same, you know, disease process at the base of it. Yeah, you say that, but the, one of the, the most helpful things, I think, in my treatment was knowing that what, how I was thinking, how I was feeling was normal for what I'd experienced. So you're not the only person that's feeling like this. You're not the only person that's gone through that. Um, and that's where, you know, started to listen to your podcast. You think, oh, I'm not the only one then, you know, um, because you do. You think you're on your own. You think you are. There's no way anyone else could be feeling like this. Um, and, yeah, as soon as you've, you've realised that it's normal to be feeling like that, it's normal to um, behave in that way. And not that it's justified, but it's, it explains a lot. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, that it does help to know that other people are in the same situation as you. Yeah. Well, I think then the normal, you know, like who you are and who I am now at 40, almost 48, is so different than who you were at 20, who I was at 20. So, you know, what is really normal uh, if you've, you know, witness all the things that you've witnessed and, and many of these guests have been through the childhood trauma that they went through before they even put the uniform on and then, you know, saw and did the things they had to do and, and had relationship failures and addiction, you know, journeys, you know, what is normal? If, you know, I think it's normal for someone to be affected by trauma, lots and lots of fucking trauma every day and sleep deprivation. So you can't, you know, it's not an apples to apples thing. Now, is it, is it right? Is it is it healthy? No. And that's our kind of mission, I think, when you're in and, and post-service is how do I get back to the the new version of me but the healthy one? Yes, there, there is, is an effect of me being a firefighter for, you know, 14 years the same way as there'd be an effect if I ate McDonald's and drank Coke every day for 14 years. Doesn't mean I'm destined to die, but I've just got a lot of fucking work to do to get as close to, you know, to, to healthy mentally and physically as I can. And I think that's it. There's, you can't be normal compared to, you know, Steve the plumber who had, let's say, no childhood trauma after you've been in the military or fire or, you know, the ER or whatever it is. Um, but you sure as hell can be the healthiest version of yourself. And that's what's so hard for us to navigate because everything is standardized. Well, how do you standardize a military or a first responder career? Like where should I be 14 years in? There's, you just you can't. So now we're having to navigate. Oh, and you know, there's there's elements of bipolar or OCD or you know anger issues or whatever it is, and and we're we're kind of slowly having to piece our own personal puzzle to get back to what is now going to be you and I in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you know. I think back at my military career, although it only ended recently, and I, and I think, where should I be? You know, if, if this hadn't happened, where would I be? You know, what rank would I be? You know, because it was all planned out. You know, it was all mapped out for me. You know, you're going to do this, you get to this rank, you go to this role, you you know. And then it was cut short. And so now I'm, I'm thinking, oh, if I was still in, I would be doing this. If I was still in, I'd be doing that. You know, and that's, sometimes that's that's really hard especially a lot of my good friends are still serving. Um, and yes, and I, it does take, yeah, it's a bit, it was a bit of pill to swallow being medically discharged because I didn't 
go on my own terms. And again, I love being in control of everything. <laughs> um, but you know, I can. I'm, I'm a veteran now, and as, as much as I hate, I hated saying that. Um, you know, and that's just the next chapter, I guess, of navigating my way through being a civvy. Yeah. Well, I think that's something I see over and over and over again is that most people struggle. I'd say nearly all people struggle because there are so many elements to it. You know, if if you're in a community that was tight, then you lose that tribe. You know, you've got that sense of purpose. Well, I wake up every day, I'm trying to wrong the rights within the military, you know, or I'm trying to, you know, respond to people's worst day in, in my community. And then, um, you know, you have identifying with that role. I am a firefighter. I am, you know, a military policeman. And the reality is that, and I talk about this a lot, it was kindness and compassion that took you and I into our profession. Like we wanted to make the world better in some way, shape or form. And so that mission hasn't changed. But sometimes it's almost you buy into this kind of two-dimensional bullshit version of what a man is through this journey. And so the other end is like giving yourself the compassion to firstly be proud of the service that you you gave. And it's always going to come to a point, whether you were 60 or, you know, one year into military service and you lost a leg, you served. But then it's like, how can I continue that mission of service without the uniform? And once you kind of really understand that you're still making the world better, I think that's, for me at least, that's been a key. Because I was wearing a firefighter's uniform. It's kind of cool. You know, I used to call them the magic trousers. I remember seeing a bunch of English tourists in, in Anaheim when I worked there. I, no girl looked at me when I was back home and I'm wearing the firefighter stuff and they're all like, you know, ooh. And I'm like, shit, these, these trousers are amazing. Well, I don't wear the magic trousers anymore. I'm just a normal dude again. But the, <laughs> but the journey I bet is. you're still the getting the women doing that though. Well, I got, I got one amazing woman. So I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> I don't need the other ones, but, um, but you know, but it is, it's, there's the ego is attached to that. I want to look like a firefighter. I want to look like a soldier. Yeah. I wear this uniform. I wear these class A's. Um, but, Going back to what brought us into the profession, nothing has changed. You know, we now take that same purpose with that same experience and then we turn the page of the book and we have a new chapter, which can be extremely exciting if we write our own story. Yeah, you're right. Um, and I never have to get deployed anywhere hot and sandy ever again. Yeah, I don't and have to wake up at night. <laughs> yeah, never have to see any. And for me, it's, uh, you know, I don't have to deal with any more dead bodies again. I think that's the the biggie for me, um, but I still miss it. Um, I, I ended up there was something happened on our street the other day, and the police turned up and you know they needed a bit of help, so I dived in, you know, got stuck in, and it, I still got that adrenaline rush. Um, you know, when I was when I was taken into hospital, actually, um, there was a as always in the emergency room. There's the drunken guy kicking off of security police came and I could hear it all going off I was straight out there straight out there restraining the guy with the police and do you know what if I saw something happening I'd probably still do it now when people say um, oh I'm a retired police officer I'm retired we don't ever retire like if I've done this before you drive by a wreck I pull over I stop and now I'm a you know paramedic for a moment am I licensed well I I am licensed still but am I getting paid to do it no but you're always going to be that. I know some people hate that term, but that sheepdog, you know, you're always going to be that protector yeah. in your community and you're never going to lose that. Yeah. I, I still carry a trauma kit in my van. You know, the chances of me coming a, a, across a sucking chest wound or, you know, a catastrophic bleed 
it's slim, but at least I've got it there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I got a tourniquet yeah. and all kinds of stuff in yeah, my yeah. car. Yeah, got, so. got a bottle of tourniquets in the car, and yeah, right. you know, I did. I I went to I went for a stage though of the extreme part of that. Of you know, I'd carry um, a bag and mask with me wherever I went, um, and you know, a proper trauma kit everywhere I went just in case something happened. And that that to me was quite damaging. Um, and I, I'd say, you know, just in case it happened, but it happened a lot. You know, the amount of times I came across traffic accidents or people that had collapsed in the street and I was there, I, I knew what to do. Um, you know, I've still got that part of me that I don't, I don't have handcuffs in the car. But, <laughs> you know, like I said, I've got, you know, a fire extinguisher, I've got a trauma kit because someone might need me. You know, and someone might need that the experience that I've I've got, and and I know how to deal with it. And I know, more importantly, I know how I react. I know how I react to it, which is when you first, when you're young and straight out of training, you don't know how you're going to react to anything. Like you, I know that if you if you went to drove past a, a car wreck, you'd be out there and you know how you deal with it. You know what to do. Yeah. So it's you know and. Like I said before, it's in your DNA and it's something like that. Once you've got it, I think you always have it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's not hypervigilance. There's, there's definitely a point where it becomes hypervigilance, you know, not winding down. But I think just being prepared if someone has a bad day, that's just being a good member of the community. And I think I think all schools should teach CPR. You know, imagine if every oh, kid yeah. had knew how to do use use a defibrillator and do CPR and do, you know, actions for choking, you know, bleeding control. I mean, that'd be amazing. We'd have an army of responders. So yeah, the more yeah, more people are out there, the better. Well, I want to yeah. ask you one thing before uh, I let you go because we're almost hitting two hours now, which is amazing. <laughs> you talked about being given some tools, you brushed them to the side. Which mm. of the tools ended up working well for you specifically? I think the main one was the five, four, three, two, one. So five things you can hear, four things you can smell, three things you can see. You know, you, you just pick things out. Um, and that, that's quite a good grounding one. Um, and I guess the, the only other one is telling someone. Is You need to tell someone that things aren't right. I mean, my wife, she spots it a mile off. She knows when I've woken up, you know, in a, in a bad way. She'll know straight away. Um, and she knows how to deal with it. So I'm quite lucky in that respect. But I, th- I guess just telling someone that if you're not, if you're not right, and it is hard to tell someone, but I think that is the main thing for me was just telling someone. Because it, if, you, if you try and, you know, hide it, that you're just spiraling again. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate... I will say, though, yeah, no, I, I, and I will say this, uh, and I mean this genuinely that when I was first suffering properly, um, where I couldn't go out on my own, um, I remember freak just freezing in, uh, Tesco car parks. I couldn't move. Um, when I was first starting to, to get into going out on my own again, I put your podcast on and you'd come around Tesco with me. Um, just just for that familiarity and I know that sounds strange but just to have that familiar voice in my ear um, it helped me a lot so you know I'm grateful to you and your podcast and all the guests you've had on because again it's that you know this this is okay you will be okay you know friendly voice in your ear as I say I'm reading your book as well 
Uh, I've read your book and I'm now listening to your um, audio book as well. Just so I can have a bit more of your voice. <laughs> it's starting to get creepy now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, honestly, I helped me immensely. Well, I mean, thank you though. Thank you so much because I've said this before. If this whole almost 600 episodes helps one person, then it was worth it. And, you know, I am as guilty as the next person of not telling people whose work positively affects me, like telling them, reaching out to them, telling them on social media, writing them a letter, whatever. And so, you know, you don't hear a lot. So when someone in conversation or whatever it is says, hey, you know, and I had a couple of messages today, it was amazing. That's the, the entire purpose. And it's not me standing here monologuing, saying, hey, here's all the solutions. It, like you said, it's these amazing men and women that had the courage, just like yourself, to tell their story. They don't only talk about the darkness and people go, well, shit, that was exactly what I went through, but also out the other side and be like, well, here's what, here's what didn't work and here's what did work and here's what I'm still working on. But it does. It, I mean, I'm just, I'm honored that I get to have these conversations. And I say selfishly, I get to ask the questions. You know, I get to choose which questions to ask these people. But it, it has become this incredible library of amazing human beings. And I think the whole, you know, the, the collective has really torn down that, that curtain of, you know, the, the facade of everyone's doing fine and I'm being a pussy to realize that every single one of us is a human being trying to figure out this crazy ride that is life. And, you know, if, if Navy SEALs and Delta and SAS can be in tears about what they saw and done and, you know, the, what they brought home, then we all can. These are the toughest of the toughest, as it were. And, you know, if someone that was there investigating war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq can be affected what, where they, what they saw and what they did, then we all can. So I want to thank you for, for coming on today and being so generous with your time, but more importantly, for having the courage to tell your story and for revisiting some of these, because I know that comes at a cost as well. So thank you so much for coming on today, brother. No, thank you. Thanks for having me.